This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today on Humans on Rights is Charlotte Enns. She is the director of the Arthur V. Morrow Center for Peace and Justice at St. Paul's College at the University of Manitoba. Charlotte has a fabulous background, uh, both academic and lived experience, which we're going to explore. Let's take a moment and find out who my guest is and a little bit about her personal journey to get to becoming the director at the Arthur V. Morrow Center for Peace and Justice. First and foremost, uh, Charlotte Enns, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about where you started, where you were born, what got you interested as a young woman, when you maybe pivoted into the issue around human rights. How did you, how did you get going on your journey? Wow. Well, that's going back a ways. I am from here. I'm Winnipeg born and raised. I did go to university in Ontario at the University of Western Ontario because I was interested in communication skills and improving communication in children. I had done some volunteer work at that organization's name has changed many times, but Society for Manitobans with Disabilities. Now I think it's called Manitoba Possible. I did some volunteering there as a teenager and really enjoyed working with the students who use different ways of communicating than spoken language. And so I went to Western to take their speech, well, communication disorders, speech language therapy program, which we didn't, we still don't have a program for that here in Manitoba. That's why I went out there initially. And through that process, I ended up getting very interested in working with deaf children and particularly deaf children whose first language is sign language. Here in Canada, it's primarily American Sign Language. And what I realized in working with those children and that community is, you know, my program was very clinically focused, which had a lot of positive things about it. But in that medical model, the individual is often the source and the solution to the problem. And so you look at remediating that person to make them more normal, so to speak. And what working with deaf children and the deaf community confronted me with this real dissonance between that medical model. And then when I would go and interact with deaf people, I was the one with the problem. I didn't know sign language. I realized that normal is really a moving target, and we need to broaden what that is in terms of our understanding in that way. And certainly, it made me look at some of my training and say, there's some things here that aren't being considered. And that really started, I guess, focus on justice in a way, because I felt like many of the deaf children that I worked with were very intelligent, very capable, but really limited in their literacy skills, their ability to read and write English. And I felt that that was a real injustice 
And it was because of the way we've been teaching them, I think, and expecting them to learn to speak and listen and not focusing on the abilities that they do have to use language in a different form, in a different modality through sign language. So let me just explore that for one second, because I I think that, you know, there's so many angles here to talk about and touch on, and particularly as you talk about sort of an injustice and, you know, and it becomes a human right. But Charlotte, when you were younger, you were in, you know, sort of grade one to 12, and you started to get involved as uh, in volunteering. And you started at that point interact or be in a position where you could interact with children who uh, were deaf. How was it that you came upon that? I, you know, like a lot of kids, you know, they spend time in areas of sports and doing different things or learning music. I mean, this is quite a very interesting area that has really kind of been something that you have used to make a difference. And we're going to talk about that, but let's go back to how you got involved in that. I had very good advice from a teacher. And so I hold teachers, well, my father always said teachers are next to angels. So there was a lot of respect for teachers in our household too. He would say that if I criticized a teacher, obviously that was his comeback. He, he didn't like to listen to any of that. And I think that's a good, good way of looking at things. I loved teaching. I mean, I was one of those kids that set up my dolls in a classroom format and had my little chalkboard and pretended to teach all the time. In fact, my younger brother will definitely admit that he was put through a lot of lessons and activities <laughs> as one of my students. When I was in high school, there was a real, I guess there were lots of teachers. And, and so, you know, it wasn't really advised that maybe you go into teaching because they didn't need any more teachers, so to speak. And, and if you did, you should really specialize in something. And although I did quite a few sports, you know, and I thought about being a phys ed teacher, it wasn't my passion in the same way as some other things. And same with music. I, I love music, but I thought, I don't know if I could teach that. I thought, you know, one of the things I'd really be interested in is this idea of children that struggle to learn or, you know, have difficulties. And one of my teachers said, well, you know, before you make that decision, you should really do some volunteer work with uh, children with disabilities and see if you like that. That It was very good advice. And that's how I got involved with that. And I ended up working at a camp in the summer. And it was, you know, really a positive experience. And I mean, there's, there was a a young woman, well, young girl, I guess, in in a teen drop-in group, we were playing cards. And I believe she had cerebral palsy. She was in a wheelchair. She was nonverbal, so non-speaking. And she didn't really have any other way of communicating than kind of grunting and pointing and that sort of thing. And And we were playing cards and she was getting very agitated and moving around and sort of squirming in her chair and making noises. And, and, you know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And this happened several times. And finally, what we figured out is she was trying to tell me that one of the other boys was cheating. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought, you know, this, this isn't right either. What? Why she knows a lot of what's going on here, and yet she can't tell right. tell us about it. Right, and so that's why I. I mean, I'd never really heard of a speech therapist growing up. I mean, they're not that common, and certainly back in the sixties and seventies, they wouldn't have been in schools very much. So that's what got me interested in that area. 
to begin with. Yeah. And I, you know, it's an interesting thing, Charlotte, because the, as we have society have sort of developed at some point, you know, a lot of those children, and even maybe you might argue because you're an expert in this area, that even today, that, that, this is quote sort of normal. You got to be sort of a norm. There's this normalcy. And that means that you should be able to have all of the faculties of, that you should be able to walk and speak and do all of the things. And not every child, not every human being has that ability. And they typically, you know, years gone by would get left behind. I mean, if there's something wrong with you, then you sort of let's move them aside because, you know, they don't seem to fit quote unquote the norm. For you to sort of see that at, at your young age and sort of get so passionate about it, you know, must have had a real, made such a lasting impression upon you because you've gone on to do research to talk about how to improve that. And tell us a little bit about how you have used the experience when you were in in high school and the experience you just shared with us to advance some of the opportunities with with children who, and I want to be careful because, you know, every time I use a term, I, I want to make sure that if I don't say it properly, Charlotte, please correct me, but you know, you talk about the word maybe maybe with children with learning disabilities, and I don't know if that is a negative attachment or if that, in fact, is what is deemed to be sort of the term that people will use in today's society. Yes, and I mean, that is that does change, and I think it does depend on the individual. I do use that term, learning disabilities. Sometimes it's just referred to as learning differences, which maybe takes it away from that deficit kind of idea. And I think that's really what what you want to get to. There are a lot of differences between people, but they don't have to matter in a negative way. And I think that's where hopefully we're getting to with a lot of the things that we're learning about, about differences in people. But they're there. We don't want to ignore that. It does mean you have to do some things differently or that they are differently abled, but it doesn't mean that they can't participate, you know, and even partial participation is completely acceptable. And that's, that's the way I think our schools are moving and our society as well. And are you finding, Charlotte, is it, are are we starting to get to a point now where schools are becoming more inclusive so that, you know, children that might be in a chair, so they need access, they need wheelchair access to get in and around schools in and out or issues where people have, um, you know, they have to sign, for example, are they starting to integrate that more and more in, uh, in the grade school level? Or is that something that still is very much a work in progress? It's hugely improved, I would say. And there's huge differences and definitely moving towards that. It is still a work in progress. I think it's very challenging for schools to for every school to meet all the various needs of all children. Some of the children require very specific expertise. And so you can't always have that available everywhere. But I think all schools can be welcoming and make efforts that way. And I think that's the general approach, certainly across Manitoba and Canada and becoming that way throughout the world which is very positive. And I think that's, that's really important. And, and yet, you know, I know that that's, there's always, I, I teach a course on this, obviously, at the university. And I try to frame the course around paradoxes, because I think that within inclusion, there are still some unresolved issues. And, and can they ever be resolved in a way that meets everyone's needs is a big question. But, you know, one of those paradoxes 
is how do you how do you include and be welcoming to everyone but still respect some of the unique cultures and the unique characteristics of people so that there's a place for fostering that which is often done with when people gather it, you know who are similar have similar values similar beliefs belief, similar ways of being in the world and yet inclusion kind of encourages everyone to mix and be together and and be open in that way and so you want to maintain some of that identity and some of that understanding of who they are in a unique way but also you know be welcome to everyone and it's challenging yeah it is and and i think that on so many levels i and i agree with you i i think teachers you know are they're incredible i mean they make such a difference in their passion about trying to teach and be part of that process. And, you know, they also, as you said, they have their limits as to what they can do. Because if you really sort of step back and, and looked at, you know, kind of in maybe a utopia sort of setting, you know, being to, at school, it, it started, you know, was always the three R's kind of started. And then it's, you know, kind of moved away from that and started to morph into really looking at education as a part of what we are as a society. And so, Understanding that there are differences in students, understanding that they learn in different ways. You know, the, the, the notion around conversations about a girls only school, you know, and, and my two daughters went to Balmoral Hall for a couple of years and then went to a mixed school. And so, you know, there's, there's great conversations around that. And I think it's fantastic. One more thing before we move on to this whole issue of the Morrow Center for, for Peace and Justice, Charlotte. I learned when I was at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, as we were doing, going through our content, that a lot of on the written word, we had to have French and English, of course, being a national museum and Canada being a bilingual country. But it would also, I learned, and this is one of the things that was incredible for me about being part of that museum project is there was a lot of learning for me. But I did learn, of course, that you have ASL, which is English Sign Language but also LSQ so that as you're doing, and I believe it's still called LSQ. Am I correct for the French yes. part of that? Yeah. You've got, you know, to be able to sort of sign in both languages, which is super important, but I, I sort of just learned that. So I just look at the involvement that you've had and I really admire what you've done and what you continue to, because it is really a part of, of who we are as a society. And I love the way that you talked about the fact that you saw it as, as an injustice, because that's clearly what it is. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's, yeah, I think the idea that there are different sign languages within Canada and even across the world is often surprising to people. That's probably the most frequently asked question I get is, well, why isn't sign language universal? And I say, why aren't spoken languages universal? It's the same principle. We have, you know, community of users and multiple languages have developed in that way. Yeah. And Charlotte, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it just occurred to me. You know, with the issue around what's happening in Canada, with the, the notion of trying to respect the Indigenous cultures and some of the, not talking about the tragedies, of course, about what we're finding with these, these, these murdered children in these graves, but the Indigenous culture, there's so many different languages, Indigenous languages. Are you aware, have they developed a sign language for the many, many Indigenous cultures that there are, exist in Canada? thing about languages is you don't develop one. It emerges from a community of users. And there certainly is research that for exactly the reason you say, because the First Nations people have so many different languages and 
different nations across North America, they actually communicated with each other through signs, through hand gestures and that kind of thing. They're the best information on this is actually in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. They have some recorded video of some very early First Nations leaders communicating because they traded amongst each other as well and interacted. And so because they didn't speak the same language, they created this system. We don't have great records for that. It isn't something that was ever used to teach children or in schools or any kind of formal way. It was used as this kind of intermediary language to interact. But there certainly are Indigenous deaf people now across North America who are trying to revitalize some of those signs, trying to incorporate First Nation perspectives into signs. There's been a lot of changes to some of the signs that were used to represent, like the sign for Indigenous has also changed, just like we use the word Indigenous or First Nations now. Those kinds of terms have entered into American Sign Language. That's the sign language I know and use. So I'm, I'm sure it has influenced other sign languages as well. But I don't know of any, like in working with Indigenous deaf children, sign, it's another language that they need to learn. And right now, typically it is ASL that's being used, at least in Manitoba with those kids. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I appreciate you, uh, appreciate that explanation. So let's pivot a little bit now about what you currently do as the director of the Arthur V. Morrow Center for Peace and Justice, as I said, at St. Paul's College here at the University of Manitoba. Tell me about uh, what, not that there's a typical day, but what, what sorts of things are you working on as uh, the director of the center? Charlotte, what sorts of things, particularly through this COVID piece, are there things that you've pivoted or changed to, or what are you currently working on out at the center right now? Okay, well, first I should just explain that the center is is just a small portion of my work. I'm still primarily a faculty member in the Faculty of Education and do my teaching and research in that area. And the directorship is something that kind of is on top of some of those tasks. And the purpose of the center is primarily as as an outreach and promotion, community promotion kind of work. So a lot of what we do there is to bring together various scholars within the university because peace and conflict studies, although we have a program in peace and conflict studies, it's very interdisciplinary. So you have people across the university and that area who do work that supports peace and justice in different ways. And so what we try to do is share their, give them an opportunity to share their work with the community. And we do that in several different ways. The most typical probably is sort of our brown bag lunch presentation sessions. We've typically done that on campus. And this past year, they were all online. And I think that was actually a really great forum because we had much larger audiences than we do. People didn't have to navigate parking, getting to Fort Garry campus and all those sorts of things. So it catered to, or it was more accessible to people beyond just those who are on campus anyway. What we've been doing in this past year is featuring a lot of the alumni 
from the Peace and Conflict Studies program. So people who have graduated from that program and uh, are working in the field actively came and shared some of their research and some of their work over the year. And we plan to do that this next fall term as well, because all of the, those sessions, which happen usually about three or four each term, are also going to be online. I wish I could tell you what's coming up, but I, we haven't finalized that schedule yet, but that will be out soon. Okay, excellent. And thank you for that explanation, Charlotte. I appreciate it. One of the things that uh, I know the founder, Arthur Morrow, who is uh, one of these you know, sort of iconic human beings who's had such a positive impact on, on not only the city of Winnipeg, but really, frankly, a, a much broader impact than that. But, you know, his comment, I remember talking to about one point, Charlotte, and he, when I was at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and he was making the comment that you need peace and justice to then understand what human rights are. And, you know, I love the conversation with him. And I just wondered from, again, your perspective, if somebody said to you, you know, Charlotte, in your capacity, if there was such a thing that we had to focus on one area first or second, would you see that there is a continuum that goes peace and justice into human rights? Or how would you sort of explain that to an audience that was just learning about what the difference is or if there is between peace, justice and human rights? Yeah, well, that's a big question. And I don't think there's any right answer. Obviously, those are all things that, that are critical and, and really, in a way, define each other. I mean, what is peace other than people having access to basic human rights and, and feeling that there is some freedom for them to express themselves in the way they want, for them to grow and learn and develop in a positive way? I, I probably would agree with uh, Dr. Morrow that you do need to establish some sort of peace in the sense of being able to focus on the needs of society, of community, which then allows the, the human rights to, to be there in place for everyone within that community. So if I had to choose what comes first, that's probably the way I would uh, say it as well. And so, and fair enough, and, uh, you know, eloquently said to Charlotte, thank you. Is there a challenge, you know, people always talk about, you know, this, this strive for world peace. And, uh, you know, it's such a big sort of subject matter to say, well, you know, we need to have world peace. Of course we do. But, you know, that conversation gets so hijacked so quickly because all you have to do is turn on the six o'clock news and realize the challenges we have in the world. You know, stepping back to the notion that, uh, you know, the Morrow Center for Peace and Justice, you know, they do great work out there and they're not going to solve world peace in a day, a week, a month, a year. But you're doing some great things to lay some foundations so people can start the educational conversations around those subject matters, Charlotte. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that, that take place around the, you know, whether it's conflict, peace and justice, but some of those issues that are dealing, that you're dealing with or that the center is dealing with? So as I said, we do, we do have sort of these more practical kinds of activities that we try and do every year with, with sharing information, like through the, the brown bag lunch sessions, as I said, we also have lecture series that bring in people from outside, uh, often outside the country who are working in, in other areas and, and have really good insights into some of the conflicts or some of the ways of resolving conflict. And so we usually bring in people for 
lecture series in that way. There's also the storytelling festival, which happens in the spring, usually in April. Unfortunately, it didn't go ahead last year because there is something really just like any kind of live performance. You just can't replicate it on video in the same way. And so we made the decision not to hold that festival last year. But the storytelling festival, although it is kind of arts-based and entertainment in a sense, it's also very much focused on uh, teaching peace and teaching conflict resolution. And really, I would say that's one of the key strategies that all of what we do at the center is based on. If you can listen to other people's stories, if you can understand other people's points of view, that is the pathway to peace. That is the way that we're going to get to world peace, if, even if that's an abstract concept in some ways. And so, yeah, that's really a primary focus. Yeah. And I, I would just ask Charlotte, do you, is there an Indigenous perspective? You know, the, the whole looking at how Indigenous and First Nations people with their culture, how they look at their form of justice. And, and it's, it's quite different than sort of when we talk about justice, sometimes we think about law and order justice. Their approach is quite different. Is that something you can share with us about some of your knowledge or experience? Well, I don't want to project like I'm an expert in Indigenous reconciliation or ways of, of justice, but certainly that's something that we that has been part of the, the foundation for the Moro Institute. I mean, it started off primarily looking like the mission was looking at the Abrahamic faiths. So um, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim in that way. But certainly Indigenous people being such a big part of Canada has definitely become part of our focus. And I think in, the, in, the, in this last year, we're taking that on much more seriously to work uh, more closely with the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, which is also on the U of M campus, and to incorporate that more into a lot of the things that we're doing. And of course, the Storytelling Festival has always had Indigenous storytellers as part of it. What we've learned from that is that storytelling is, uh, I mean, it's a very important part of Indigenous culture. And it's very, as an educator, I've learned that it's a very big part of, the, of their teaching. And so whenever questions are asked, they're answered with stories. And whenever a conflict arises, there's time to sit and tell stories. What I've learned from that is it's a very effective way of interacting with people, having some kind of a sharing circle to begin any kind of interaction or meeting or discussion, having some way of being aware of where everyone's at and the perspectives they bring before you, you talk about what you want to accomplish or how to move forward. And I think it goes very contrary to some of the ways that we certainly function at the university. And so it's a really good call to kind of reflect and, and let's see about how we can do things differently. And I mean, that really is what is so great about the, I mean, university, I mean, it's just such a high place of learning and challenging and thinking about different ways and be open. And 
that notion that it's not a matter of a conversation about who's right or who's wrong. It's just, what's your view and why is your view that way? And how can we kind of come together on that? I want to pivot for a second, Charlotte, to talk about um, International Day of Peace, which is September 21st, which I believe is also the Indigenous Fall Equinox the same day. The theme, which I, I Googled, Googled and looked up, is the road to lasting peace, leveraging the power of youth for peace and security. So that's kind of the thematic for this September 21st International Day of Peace. I Googled the theme of what it is for 2021, and the theme is the road to a lasting peace, leveraging the power of youth for peace and security. And I was just going to ask you, when you hear that, and that's the theme, what comes to mind for you? Well, I, I think that's just an excellent theme right now because that's really where the change is coming or the push for change is coming from and who's going to make the change. I think we have had to recognize in this last couple of years how powerful youth are in driving change in our society, uh, a group that's often been ignored in the past. but. When it comes to climate change, when it comes to Indigenous, I don't know more, all these movements are coming from youth. And they are recognizing that things have to change or they're not going to have a peaceful world or a world to live in in any way. And I think it's gotten to the point where that just can't be ignored at all. And in fact, they're really driving a lot of the impact and the, you know, the actions that people are taking. You've got youth speaking at, you know, at the UN. You've got youth leading some of the, the, the main movements to make this kind of change. And so I think that's really important. And I think it is a good motivation for all of us. This is who we're doing it for. Some of these changes won't affect us in our lifetimes, but we need to be aware of those coming behind us in that way. I support what you're saying when you think about adding to the list. I mean, we could go on, but, you know, the Black Lives Matter list, you, you look at sort of the youth that are driving that, that conversation or, you know, south of the border, the, you know, love affair they have with, uh, with guns south of the border. And after every tragedy, it seems that there's more and more younger people that are coming out and just saying, you know, we, we have to change this. You know, their voices are very strong, Charlotte, and I certainly support them. I just sometimes wonder uh, aloud, uh, you know, and I'll ask sort of you the question, are they being given the fair chance or the fair opportunity or the fair platform to take their voice and then look at putting it into action? Because I do think that, you know, one of the things about conversations that we're having today, it's kind of that educate, mobilize, and then take action. And sometimes I wonder if they're not running into roadblocks on the action piece. Well, yes, I think certainly they are. And I don't think that's because of anything they're doing, but because of some of the, well, I'm not that I know that much about it, but I think that's really more about other people taking some of the responsibility and, and supporting that who are in positions of change. I think that's where the push is going to come from. As they keep pushing, people aren't going to be able to ignore that. And so some of those things will get into the courts, will get into some of the places where change can happen and be taken up by others who maybe have a little bit more authority, more power, more voting say, or whatever it takes. 
they're having that influence in some way. Are we there yet? No, probably not. Right. Certainly social media, they're very savvy and they've used that, you know, positively. I, you know, unfortunately we could have a whole other discussion about social media, how it's not so positive for a lot of people, but there are elements that have made it positive. So Charlotte, I was going to ask you, um, you know, in your capacity, and I know you've got a number of sort of areas that you oversee, but, you know, in, in specifically when we talk about your capacity as the director of the Arthur V. Morrow Center for Peace and Justice, I just want to ask you kind of a, a question of why do you think it's important to have an International Day of Peace? Well, I think it's really important to recognize that maybe not take it for us anyway in Canada to not take it for granted. And I think that's something that we're facing. We're realizing that peace is not just the absence of war. We haven't had that on our on our physical land for many, many years, that there are so many other things that have happened that are not a peaceful history, not a peaceful time. And for us to recognize that and bring that into the forefront, I mean, that's, that's what these days are all about, is to acknowledge some of the, what we do have, but also some of the things that are not in place. And seeing uh, peace is not just a goal for some of those countries that are far away where there is actual, you know, warfare going on, but that there's much to be done to build peace in our own communities as well. It's one of those areas that I've, I've always struggled with because it's every day there's something to acknowledge, to maybe celebrate or memorialize, whatever it may be. And, you know, when these days get put onto a map, or get put onto a calendar. So, you know, you have a single day where you talk about an international day of peace. It's a pretty tall order, but it really isn't. I mean, I'll, I'll just liken it perhaps to, to Mother's Day. Uh, this is a male perspective, but I always was blessed with my mother to say, you know, every day should be Mother's Day. We're, we're, it's not about one day or a week. But I, I do think that the, the notion of trying to um, bring some of these issues to the forefront, to give them a theme, to let people talk about them and, and you know, perhaps and hopefully uh, in your capacity that your voice will be added to something that might happen in and around September 21st, because that's sort of operate yourself out at the Moral Center for Peace and Justice. Is there, is there one thing that you would say to maybe students when they first get involved in one of your classes and you want to talk about conflict resolution, you want to talk about this issue around peace and justice, Charlotte, is there, is there one sort of opening line that you like to give to students to sort of set the, set the tone for what's, uh, what's to come on the discussions? I do have a little quote I use, and I feel terrible because I don't even remember where it came from. So I, 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 I can't give credit. It kind of comes from, well, the, the quote that I use is change defensiveness to curiosity. And everybody knows when they start getting that feeling, the blood rises to their face or whatever, when you start to get defensive or you, you want to you wanna lash out, you want to react in some way, maybe. And I always try to say, take that moment and stop and ask a question instead. And not just a question like, you know, what the heck do you think you're doing? But a real question to, to try and understand the behavior of the other person or the action or the comment of the other person. And that idea of changing judgment or defensiveness to curiosity, to me, is such a key 
in any kind of conflict resolution or way of, of learning more. And so, you know, that's where it starts is, you know, when you are judging, can you, can you shift that and really say, I'm wondering why you might be thinking that's the best way to go or why you believe that or where it comes from. And, and you'll be surprised even for yourself where some of your beliefs come from. I would say that, that that's probably a great way to end this, uh, this conversation, Charlotte, on it's the beginning of a conversation you have with your students, which is really tremendous. And I think it's a great way for us maybe just to, to wrap this conversation up. I, I want to just uh, thank you, Charlotte Enns, for your comments, your conversation, uh, your views, and obviously your time and for what you do. So thank you for this conversation on Humans on Rights. I, I really appreciate and uh, respect your, uh, your viewpoint. Well, thank you very much. It was great speaking to you today. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.